by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, listeners, and a very warm welcome to another episode of Moody's Talks Inside Emerging Markets. As ever, I'm your host, Rahul Ghosh, coming to you from the UK. From a credit perspective, few regions or sectors, if any, have been immune to the unprecedented shock we've seen brought about by the coronavirus pandemic. And for many emerging markets, large and small, the last few months have been particularly tough. And that's raised questions about the credit prospects for the asset class going forward. So in this podcast series, we aim to make sense of events and bring you the very latest perspectives across the globe from Moody's analyst community. Coming up on today's show, despite its large diversified economy and youthful demographics, Turkey has faced significant credit challenges in recent years. Market concerns over the country's direction remain elevated, a situation aggravated further by the pandemic. We discuss what's in store for the country's credit profile a bit later on. We've seen a significant decrease in both gross and net foreign currency reserves in Turkey, which mean that the ammunition that the authorities have to try to manage any instability caused uh, on the external accounts is greatly diminished. But first, emerging market financial conditions are beginning to calm. That's a key takeaway from our new series of proprietary EM financial conditions indicators, or FCIs. These FCIs capture trends across nine of the largest emerging economies globally. So for more, I'm joined by Merce Tadella, a senior vice president in our model development group based in the US. Thanks so much for joining us today, Merce. Thank you, Rahul, for having me. Let's start by providing our audience with some context on these new uh, financial conditions indicators. Uh, What countries do they cover? Have they been constructed? And how should we interpret them? So... The FCIs are built from a wide range of financial and economic variables aiming to capture the cost and the availability of funding for each of the nine emerging markets we consider. So we have uh, three countries in Latin America, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, another three in Asia, China, India, and Indonesia, and again, all the three in EMEA, South Africa, Turkey, and Russia. And we also constructed an EM aggregate as an average of the country's FCIs. The different measures that go into the financial condition indicator were selected so that they reflect conditions across the different financial markets as well as the real economy. For example, we included sovereign bond spreads and term premiums to capture bond market conditions, but also things like stock prices and volatility that speak more to equity markets. We also have industry expectations, purchasing manager indices that summarize the macroeconomic environment. And your second part of the question, you asked me about how to interpret or read these FCIs. Well, basically, a zero value indicates that overall financial conditions are in line with the long-term averages, what we will call normal conditions. A negative value is usually interpreted as indicating tighter than normal financial conditions, while a positive value is associated with conditions that are stronger than normal. 
Okay, thank you very much, Moshe. Very clear. Uh, and I guess that begs the question, what are the current readings telling us from the financial conditions indicators? Are we starting to see a settling of conditions across major emerging economies? In short, yes, the conditions have started to normalize. We saw a very sharp deterioration in the financial conditions across the nine emerging markets in March and April. But now the FCIs are showing signals of a gradual stabilization. Measure of capital flows, equity markets, bond markets, and even macro fundamentals, but to a lesser degree, have beginning to calm. But they are still quite far away from the levels that we saw at the start of the year. Similarly, the stabilization has not been even across countries. For example, China financial conditions are closer to the January levels than for other countries, like Brazil or Mexico, even Argentina. But, but it's true that deterioration in China also started earlier, like in February, rather than in March and April as the other countries. Mm, so it sounds like there is some differentiation across countries, uh, but broadly speaking, there's scope for tentative optimism on financial conditions. So as these conditions start to normalise, what are the immediate credit implications of this trend for major emerging markets? So this relative improvement on the financial conditions will make it easier for emerging market debt issuers to access dollar liquidity and to return to primary markets. What this means for companies is that they will be better able to manage their liquidity and their refinancing needs. That said, we don't think that the conditions for all companies will ease at the same time, will ease equally, like investment-grade companies are expected to lead the way. Speculative-grade ones, the lower-rated ones, will follow the lead of the investment-grade ones. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about our new financial conditions indicators, Merche, and for more on the new EM series of FCIs, or to read our mid-year Emerging Market Credit Conditions report, which does discuss our new FCIs in more depth, you can go to moody's.com forward slash emerging markets. Next up, we turn our attention to Turkey. In recent years, the country's sovereign credit profile had deteriorated due to an erosion of institutional strength, turbulent politics, elevated external vulnerabilities, and weakening quality and transparency of macroeconomic policies. Investor sentiment had temporarily stabilized last year, but the onset of the coronavirus pandemic has put the country's credit challenges back into focus. So for more on the country's credit outlook, I'm joined from Paris by Sarah Carlson of our Sovereign Risk team. Welcome, Sarah. Great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here, Rahul. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's kick things off. The coronavirus shock has brought Turkey's tentative economic recovery to an abrupt halt. Now, of course, this is not unusual. We've seen that across many emerging markets, but perhaps on the growth side, I'd like to start by your expectations on just how deep the downturn will be this year, and what are you thinking in terms of a rebound in activity? Sure. Well, I think a really important place to start is that Turkey was not going into this crisis from a particular position of strength. I think as many listeners will know, in the middle of 2018, Turkey experienced a currency crisis, and that had negative implications for economic growth toward the back end of 2018 through much of 2019. And the only reason why Turkey was able to achieve positive growth of 0.9% was because of a variety of fiscal and quasi-fiscal stimulus measures that basically boosted growth. So going into this crisis, uh, Turkey was, even though the Q1 numbers weren't too bad, 
uh, Turkey was not in a particularly strong position. Now we're expecting a contraction in growth of 5% this year uh, and then a rebound of 3.5% next year, which is not fantastic growth for a country like Turkey and a very large emerging market with uh, a lot of hypothetical growth potential. But uh, something I think that's really important to bear in mind is it's not just for Turkey a matter of what happened with the lockdowns. Turkey is a country with a very large tourism sector. And so we're expecting quite a weak tourism season this year. And uh, the news that the European Union has not put Turkey on its list of destinations that where travel can happen freely is certainly not going to help measure matters. That's going to mean that even once uh, you know, the effect of lockdowns passes, Turkey still has some negative pressures on growth because of the impact on this key industry. Okay, so weaker growth coupled with fiscal stimulus, as you mentioned, uh, that will presumably undermine Turkey's fiscal and government debt metrics, uh, which have been a key credit strength in the past. Uh, how great a challenge will this be for the authorities, Sarah? You're absolutely right. I mean, one of the real anchors for the Turkish rating has been the government's fiscal strength, but it has become less and less of a strength over the last couple of years. In fact, this year in our annual report on Turkey, uh, readers would see that we have actually reduced our assessment of Turkey's fiscal strength. Now, we can see this reflected in the deficit numbers, which have been rising steadily from 3.1% deficit in 2018 to this year a 7.5% deficit. It's important to note uh, kind of a nerdy point, but that does exclude a lot of one-off measures that the authorities have taken. And we've also seen a real deterioration in debt affordability. Uh, so in 2018, we said this was at 6.9%. In 2019, this had deteriorated to 9.6%. And this coming year, our, we're currently forecasting 10.9%. Now, this isn't just because of higher deficits and higher debt. It's also because of the exchange rate uh, depreciation, because Turkey does have a material amount of foreign currency denominated debt. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Let's talk about that a bit more at a country level. So as a whole, the country does have large external financing needs. Um, in this current environment, does that mean that a balance of payments crisis is, is in the cards for Turkey? Well, I think it's important to bear in mind a couple of things. Most importantly, uh, most of the external debt that Turkey has is private sector debt, not public sector debt. Only about a third of that external debt is public sector debt. And that means that the, the way in which external pressures manifest themselves is really through the real economy. Now, you asked about a balance of payments crisis. Turkey has had you know, structurally large current account deficits for years. Uh, the current account uh, deficit with the weakening of the economy has actually come down. Uh, Turkey experienced a current account surplus last year, and we expect a small deficit this year. But the thing that helps a country avoid a balance of payments crisis is a floating exchange rate, because the exchange rate is what then really takes the hit. And the central bank's efforts to try to, to defend the value of the lira this year have really eroded Turkey's buffers. We've seen a significant decrease in both gross and net foreign currency reserves in Turkey, which mean that the ammunition that the authorities have to try to manage any instability 
caused uh, on the external accounts is greatly diminished. But the way in which that manifests itself is uh, a greater risk of really uh, macroeconomic dislocation uh, rather than sort of an outright balance of payments crisis. Thanks, Sarah. Let's let's stick with the theme of policymaking. I mentioned at the outset some of the challenges around institutional strength and domestic politics. What are your expectations on both fronts for the coming 12 months? Right. So let's take institutional strength first. We've seen a gradual weakening of institutional strength over a number of years. And this has taken a number of forms. First of all, a weakening uh, regard for the independence of institutions that legally are independent. This is most vividly illustrated uh, with regard to the central bank. And this has really impeded the central bank from meeting its inflation target objectives over time. But you can also see it uh, in the effectiveness of macroeconomic policy. It isn't that the Turkish authorities don't know what needs to be done to address some of the structural growth constraints that Turkey has. It's a question of mustering the political will to actually take those measures where, you know, let's be frank, there is a political cost over the short term to taking some of them. But at the end of the day, the long term benefit can be significant. To take political risks separately, Turkey obviously had quite a few years. It's a quite a crowded electoral calendar. Um, and that came to a close with the rerun of the Istanbul mayoral election. And so there's now a pretty clear political calendar for the next few years. The next elections are due in 2023. But if we think about geopolitical risk, Something that certainly has been quite prominent would be sanctions risk, particularly with regard to Turkey's purchase of the S-400 missile systems from Russia. Now, it's important to bear in mind that that has not resulted in sanctions from the United States as of yet, but this is still a risk that is bubbling away because of the nature of some U.S. legislation, specifically CATSA. We've talked, Sarah, a lot about the credit challenges that Turkey faces. But of course, the country has up until recently been a global growth outperformer. So maybe I could ask you to take a five-year view and think about some of the structural dynamics. Do you think they're going to support or constrain Turkey's growth prospects? Well, over the last few years, it's important to not forget that one of the things that boosted growth was credit. So not all of that was necessarily a material increase in sort of fundamental structural growth metrics. But if we take a step back, there is certainly some important positives that Turkey has. It's a large economy. Um, it's a very well diversified economy and it demographics are really on Turkey's side. Having said that, it does have some structural constraints. If we look at the imbalance between the savings rate and investment, that's one of the things that actually creates this dependence on foreign capital. There are also structural issues like very high levels of labor market uh, rigidity, also issues with regard to the education system. Turkey also has some of the lowest female labor force participation in the OECD. These are things that really hold Turkey back from achieving the kind of growth potential that a country with its fundamentals should be able to achieve uh, with an enabling policy mix. Okay, well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. It's been a great discussion. And Turkey's credit dynamics really do underscore a broader view that the coronavirus pandemic has crystallized existing credit challenges for some of the largest emerging economies globally.
And to learn more about our global EM views, you can check out our Emerging Markets In Focus webinar channel. Uh, this platform features presentations, panel discussions, interviews, Q&A, and much more. And to find out about it, you can go to events.moody's.io forward slash emerging markets. And for those of you who may have missed previous episodes of this podcast series, you can also find the full archive at moody's.com forward slash EM podcast. But until next time, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.